Hello and welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike, and today I'm joined with Dr. Finney Curavilla, who's the co-founder of Eventide Asset Management and Funds and the founder of Sattler College. Welcome back, everyone, to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Guys Like Us podcast, if this is your second, third, 83rd time, or if you're a first-time listener, welcome. It's a pleasure having you join us today. In today's conversation, I speak with Dr. Finney Coravilla, who is the co-founder of Eventide Asset Management and Funds and the founder of Sattler College. Dr. Curavilla holds an MD from Harvard Medical School, a PhD in chemistry and chemical biology from Harvard University, a master's degree in electrical engineering and computer science from MIT, and a bachelor's degree in Caltech in chemistry. We discuss the early church before the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, the importance of the Greek language in understanding the scriptures, and the impact on political and social dimensions. Finney details the Anabaptist and Radical Reformer movement and its impact on the creation of Sattler College. Here, what makes Boston's academic and religious environment so special in the value proposition of Sattler College. And then finally, we explore business and work, its biblical roots in Genesis, and the importance of nature in the life of a Christian. We explore some practical uses of a plant-based diet, which Dr. Curavilla is currently on right now, um, and also some, some book recommendations and resources at the end of the podcast. If you're like me, you always want to leave with something else that you can take from this podcast. He shares a few books that you can look into and read yourself. Without further ado, I'm going to turn it on over to my conversation, Dr. Finney Curavilla. I think where I want to start is just to, to hear a bit more about your, your faith background, where, where you come from, and what your childhood uh, faith was like. Yeah, so I was raised in a Christian home, and I was born and raised in the L.A. area, Southern California. My parents are very devout Christians, and so I had the benefit of being in a in a very godly environment. When I was young, my parents decided to move back to India to start a Bible college. They're immigrants from India, although I was born and raised in the U.S. And so a big part of my religious experience as a youth was going back and forth between India and the U.S., traveling with my parents, hearing them cast the vision for this Bible college. I would say that in terms of the specific denomination or type of Christian, it was fairly standard Protestant evangelical, and I ended up working in Christian radio for three years. Uh, it was my, my first kind of real job after high school, and that was listening to a lot of the big names, John Piper and John MacArthur, Tim Keller, people like that. Focus on the family was really big. This was in the 90s. And I was also very involved in InterVarsity when I was in college, and I still am actually. So I started in 1991, and now I, I volunteer with InterVarsity. So it's been um, you know, more than almost 30 years now of, of involvement that I've had with InterVarsity. 
what happened was when I was in college, particularly my senior year, was I started to see some of the, the cracks in the armor, so to speak. And there's a man named George Barna, who you, you may know, who's done quite a lot of work on just statistically looking at what's going on inside the church versus outside. And when you look at those reports that he's now devoted decades of his life to, it's fairly depressing because generally you find that there's no statistical difference between people inside the church versus those outside with respect to measures like pornography, measures like television watching, horoscope reading, giving, you name it, it's, it's generally very depressing. And so that was something that bothered me a lot because it seems like the whole point of the New Covenant described in the Bible is that there was going to be a transformation and a difference between those inside and out. And so that got me on a whole journey, uh, which I'm very excited about. My first year of medical school was 1995, and I decided to just read progressively more and more uh, ancient authors, starting with the Great Awakenings and then going backwards uh, in time. And so I got a very good sense of what Christianity was and how it's evolved over the years. And a lot of people won't realize it's changed tremendously over the years, and I became convinced, and I remain convinced to this day, that generally speaking, we've had a degeneration in the faith, not a progression in the faith, which I would make the case that's actually predicted in the Bible as well, passages like 2 Timothy 3, Matthew 24, etc. So that ended up getting me on a journey, which hopefully we can talk more about, mm -hmm. to rediscover what is that historic, original faith as Jude calls it, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so I've had a lot of backgrounds, and I've, I've been in a lot of settings, particularly because my parents are missionaries. But now I'm very firmly grounded in what I would call the historic Christian faith, which is particularly well described by the authors that lived before the Council of Nicaea. So the Council of Nicaea was 325 AD, and the authors and writers and martyrs of that time period, I think, articulated a very different vision and understanding of what Christianity was that I'm particularly attracted to. Thank you for sharing. And yeah, I think a lot of folks, Christians, non-Christians, haven't had this theological, uh, the early Christian understanding of uh, before the first council of Nicaea. I'd fared a lot of friends I know and people I encounter, um, if you were to mention uh, Tertullian or uh, Irenaeus or these folks from uh, the early church that have no idea who right. they are. Um, what what is so? I, what was so fascinating about the early church for you and, and these particular figures? I, I once read an essay when I was in college that, that moved me tremendously. The, the essay basically said that every generation has its blind spots, and it's inevitable because we're all reading one another, we're listening to one another, and so that's going to foster a sense of of areas in which we're just not really paying attention to or areas that we've missed the ball entirely. And the remedy for that is to read outside of your time period in other generations, and they're gonna have their own blind spots, but they're different from your blind spots. And that has a, a very powerful corrective tendency where when you go back and read those earlier authors, you can see like, whoa, what did I miss here? I can't believe this. It's so obvious now that I'm reading from their perspective where we've gone astray. That's one key element in this. There's another one which I don't think we give enough 
weight to this, which is the idea that you want to learn from the authors who were fluent in the language of the Bible, which was Koine Greek. And so, you know, all of us recognize, who have any experience, I grew up in a bilingual home, but if you have any experience with a language, second language acquisition is very difficult, and it's particularly difficult if you can't even immerse yourself in it today, right? There's nobody today who speaks Koine Greek, and we've lost a lot of the idioms and sensitivities. And so if we can go and see how the earliest authors who Koine Greek was their mother tongue, they wrote in it, talked with it, cried in it, write poetry and wrote poetry in it, they're gonna have almost certainly a better understanding of the language and its nuances than all of us who are trying to peer across 2,000 years of history and reconstruct with lexicons and hmm. all kinds of tools what those what the, the words and the sentences meant. And so that is an incredibly valuable tool to understand what the New Testament actually said and to clear up some of the fog of confusion that exists today and why there's so many denominations. And then there's a third reason, which is simply proximity in time and culture and even mentorship. So you have authors in the second century, for example, who were directly mentored by some of the apostles. Well, I mean, clearly that's an important perspective. I mean, if you can learn from people who were directly taught by the apostles themselves, people like John, the apostle, well, I want to know what they had to say. And so if we care about truth, those, those three helps that I just mentioned are incredibly valuable to, to get us a more, uh, more accurately a, an understanding of the truth. And so people like, you mentioned Tertullian, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Clement of Rome, I mean, there's a lot of people like that that we could, we could rattle off here who have so many advantages that we will never have. And, and frankly, I think to not use them as a resource for understanding is a theological crime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then, if, if you if we were to stay kind of in the in the early church, um, and and focus on and one point was the, the apostle lineage of how that's the, just the proximity to to when um, the, the, the 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 those first apostles went out and started uh, creating churches. What what is so impactful about the the, the schism that that happened that separated Catholicism and Protestant Protestantism that. Maybe what or some some concepts that were that we've forgotten that are important to, to come back to. Yeah, there's there's so many. Um, so where to start here? But I'll, yeah. I'll choose maybe one or two. So I would even say that by the time you get to the Catholic Protestant split, which is of course it's 1500s, you've already had tremendous changes in the fabric of Christianity, mm. and a lot of people don't realize that today what we call Catholicism, and, and I think even many Catholics would acknowledge this, is really a medieval creation. It's something that, so for example, when you look at the, the first 300 years of the church, they wrote so strongly against icons and images and statues and all those kinds of things. That's kind of shocking, right? When, when people who are Orthodox or Catholic go and read for themselves the primary sources and they think like, whoa, the church fathers, they spoke so strongly against some of the things that are almost defining to particularly liturgical groups today. Um, and it's, I think it's safe to say it's almost uncontested that that was their position. And yet, people don't necessarily weight that or care about that. They're having discussions about Thomas Aquinas or John Calvin or somebody way later. But I think an even more profound difference, and that, that is important, but I think an even more profound difference happened around the whole notion of 
how the church viewed itself, and in particular this idea that in the early centuries of Christianity, the church viewed itself essentially as a nation within a nation, that they were a, a citizenry that held allegiance to Jesus, and there was a tension between being a citizen of Jesus' kingdom and being a citizen of Rome. And all of the language that is used, particularly in authors like uh, Paul and Philippians, where he says, you're citizens of heaven, your citizenship is in heaven. He says, he, in 2 Corinthians, he says that we're ambassadors, again, highly political language. First um, Peter says, you're a royal nation, uh, which again, is obviously a political term mm -hmm. there. Uh, terms like Jesus is Lord in Greek, Jesus est in Kyrios, uh, clearly is playing off of language that is highly political language that was used in the first century. So there's an almost seditious quality to a lot of the first century. And what blows people away is when you read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, which is Jesus' longest teaching anywhere in the whole Bible, he says things like, don't swear oaths. And a lot of people look at that and are like, what in the world does this mean? Don't swear oaths. Or, well, I, don't, I don't get this. I can't process this. I don't understand what this is about. Well, functionally, what Jesus was doing, because in the first century, just like today, if you wanted to become a governor or join the military or do all those things, you had to swear an oath. He was fencing off his followers from joining those kinds of entities. And that's exactly what the early church understood. They said, we cannot participate in earthly politics as the world does today, which again is a mind-blowing concept, certainly was to me, given my background. And the Council of Nicaea, first ecumenical council, over 300 bishops from all around the world, Canon 12 says, that if you are in the church and you join the military, you're kicked out of the church. Now, I mean, who would fathom this today from either a Protestant or a Catholic background, right? I mean, it's it's almost unheard of that someone would espouse this kind of position. But this was a universal teaching of the church, and you find it described very clearly in Hippolytus, in Justin Martyr, in Tertullian, you mentioned him before. Virtually all of the writers of the early church espouse this position that when Jesus says, love your enemies, means love your enemies and that we can't forego that for the sake of some competitive allegiance to the state now when I encountered these ideas I was raised like I said in a Protestant evangelical fairly Republican-ish environment it was so disruptive and so antithetical to everything that I had been raised and taught but yet there's a fork in the road they both can't be right I mean either there is this this nation of of Jesus, if you will, in this this new uh, this new kingdom, Entity, as, yeah. as Jesus calls it, uh, or there's not, and mm -hmm. and that that new kingdom has its own allegiances and has its own uh, commitments to Jesus's Sermon on the Mount that are going to put it in collision with the demands of Caesar or the demands of whatever the king or president that one happens to be living in at the time, and so you you again get. When you start thinking about these ideas, you get why being a Christian was so seditious, right? You are now putting your allegiance in this person, Jesus, who teaches a very different way. And if you subscribe to Jesus' teachings in this way, well, suddenly that's going to put you at odds with many, not all, but many of the teachings and laws of the Greco-Roman Empire or any other empire. And so, so that alone, you know, is something that I think we need to remember. And so... By the time you get to medieval Catholicism, that was generally forgotten. 
you know, post-Constantine, the church gained vast amounts of power, wealth, buildings that went from being basically underground house churches to being these incredibly lavish structures. And by the time you get to the Reformation, you hardly even have a discussion about that. Now, there were other groups all throughout history, and there were the persecuted minority that people tend to forget about that kept calling back to that original vision. So the Anabaptists were one example in the in the time of the Reformation. They were also called the Radical Reformers. And their basic critique of the Protestants was that you're not going far enough. We agree with much of what you're saying. However, your reform is primarily a theological reform, getting rid of some of the clutter of indulgences and, and uh, papal structure and some of the 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 buildup that had happened over the roughly thousand years post the Constantinian Revolution. But they didn't really challenge some of these more fundamental structures of what does the church represent. And ecclesiologically, that's why I think they, they represent such, such an interesting group. But you see that also with the Wicklefites, you see with the Waldensians, you see it with the Donatists, and you see a long history of these small, typically highly persecuted groups that the mainstream churches turn against uh, that are still calling people back to that original pre-constant, pre-Nicene vision. Yeah, well, wow. And, and yeah, so I guess, you know, from, from all this research and all this investigation, which is obviously a lot of it was, I'm sure, on your own time and or just through other resources, um, what made you decide that, um, that the, that I guess higher education was, was the proper uh, platform proper way for for you to kind of reinstill some some uh, some concepts some you know n- not foreign concepts but to bring them back into light. In Luke chapter six, Jesus says, "Every student when he is fully trained will be like his teacher," mm-hmm. and I sometimes call that the iron law of discipleship because he's basically saying that if you sit at the feet of whoever your teachers happen to be, you're going to become more and more like them, whether or not you want to or not. It's just going to happen. And it makes sense because you're hearing the way that they process the world. You're sitting at the feet. You're taking the tests that they design. You're trying to get good grades by them. You're getting letters of recommendation from them. And so there is an inexorable process that happens, which I think is one of the most powerful forms of discipleship that occurs Mm. in the world, whether or not we call it that or not, which is education. And it starts, obviously, kindergarten, and it goes all the way through the end of one's educational process. Now, as it so happens, the, the I think the college higher education realm is a particularly interesting realm because we're, we're unusually moldable in that season of life. I certainly was. And you're looking for truth. You're looking to define who you are. You're outside of your parents' home, typically. And you have all of these big questions about origin and morality and purpose and meaning. And college is a great way for people to get a grounding in those questions for better or for worse and I think there's a lot of examples on both sides and and so we had decided to start Satma College with the idea of taking young people who have an inkling to to move in this more historic direction who have some suspicions about the way that modern Christianity mm-hmm. has evolved and to have a an environment where that kind of faith and questioning about the system as it exists today can be reinforced and nurtured. And it it is an inherently subversive process, right? And so I would say that when you look at a place like 
Sattler College compared mm -hmm. to the typical university, we are we're very different in the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we ask questions is much more searching and fundamental and digging out at some of the very foundations of what I think education has become. And so that's our hope, is that we can do that. And I would say, generally speaking, education has long been the ground for starting movements. And when you look at the Civil Rights Movement is, is one example, when you look at abolition, when you look at many different examples there, uh, for good reason, the higher education realm has been a tremendous theater for starting movement. Boston is mm -hmm. one of the best places in the world for that. And my hope and our, our dream and our vision is that we can be a small part of challenging status quo to think back to that original historic mm -hmm. understanding of what Christianity is. Mm -hmm. So so we're sitting right here uh, now in Boston. and. When I think about just the overall environment of uh, academia in, in Massachusetts and New England, and also the religious um, adherence or the religious belief, it's uh, the education is very high, um, but at the same time, it seems like uh, people are getting are growing more skeptical of, mm -hmm. of higher education. Yes. Um, as it is obviously as cost is going up, um, there's uh, there's a higher bar uh, in terms of getting a job after school as well. Um, and then also for this environment in particular, it's one of the most least religious areas in the entire country. Mm -hmm. um, so how kind of, when you were like looking and thinking through that Boston would be your, your home base um, and that, uh, I, I guess, the, the particular approach, how, how were you able to reconcile the, the environment here and you know, where are, these, are the students coming from, from local? Um, what, what is so appealing, or at least for that, this we're now in the second semester, what was so appealing for this, this first class to enter? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, part of it is, I think Boston is, it is a place where movements have been started. So obviously, in, the, in a very fundamental way, you could say that America started in Boston. I mean, many of the ideas, no, tax, no taxation without representation, mm -hmm. Sons of Liberty, Paul Revere, Sam Adams, et cetera, they, they found their home here. And, and so that was probably the first and maybe most important movement that came out. But then later on, we saw in the 1800s, or I should say late 1700s, early 1800s, we saw the Unitarian movement begin here. And so the, the first Unitarian church in all of America is King's Chapel, which is right on the Freedom Trail. Uh, and so the Unitarian movement, which I would argue today is what most people in America are some flavor of Unitarian. They may not call themselves that, but when you look at kind of the Oprah style religion that's out there, it's, it's some flavor of Unitarian. So the Unitarian movement began here. We have in the middle of the 1800s, William Lloyd Garrison, who in many ways starts the yeah. abolition movement, gives his first speech right at Park Street Church, mm -hmm. uh, also on the Freedom Trail. And then we see in the 20th century, we see Harold Ockengay, who starts the evangelical movement right at Park Street Church, again, very important historic place. And, Gordon Conwell gets created out of that, Fuller Seminary gets created out of that, Christianity Today starts as a result. And so the evangelical movement, which is an incredibly powerful shaping movement, began there as well. So you have multiple examples of very powerful world-changing movements. Martin Luther King Jr. came here and studied at BU, where you're a student. And there's no doubt that he was highly influenced by the professors that he had there. And so when he moved back to Alabama, I think he, he carried much of what he, he gained here in the womb of education 
and brought that into the South and obviously started an incredibly important and, and very positive civil rights movement. So, so I think that's what it was, four or five different movements that all started mm -hmm. right here within a couple of miles of where we're sitting. And that's, a, that's really a testimony to a couple of unique facets of Boston. One is that it is a, a very interesting combination of highly international, global, educational, but also small and highly networked, right? I mean, the, the actual footprint of Boston is not huge. Uh, you, can, you can walk one end to the other in probably an hour. And in the midst of all that, you just have a lot of trafficking of ideas and thoughts. I was riding the subway not too long ago, and I was looking across the red line where I was riding, and I saw someone, and I walked up to him, and I said, are you Muhammad Al-Aryan, who won the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize? And he said, yes, I am. And so, lo and behold, I got to sit down and have a conversation with a Nobel Prize winner on the subway for 10 minutes as we, as we rode from point A to point B, right? And that kind of thing happens a lot around here. I'm always amazed at, again, the, the types of people and the, the influential capacity that exists here. And so we are very consciously trying to start some, something that is a movement and call people back. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably the best city in the country if you want to do that. There's a couple others that are close. Mm -hmm. But I think all things considered, when we made the decision, I'm very glad that we did, Boston is the right place to be. Mm -hmm. And one thing about your kind of, that was more of a macro level, but looking kind of into the into the into the weeds of your um, into your curriculum um, and also into your learning style. I know that uh, you're at least right now not operating on a traditional lecture right. uh, style, but it sounds like it's more of a, work, a workshop or kind of a it, more of a dialogue in class. Exactly. Yeah. So this is one of the unfortunate features of what has happened to education, which is that it's turned into more of a spoon feeding mentality, and then. People cram for some exam and then they tend to forget it and then it's you know, rinse and repeat that cycle, right? And you know, I went to good schools and even in good schools, that's the pattern that exists there. So the original vision of education, so particularly when you go and look at Oxford and Cambridge and those very important institutions in England, C.S. Lewis, for example, was a tutor at, at both Oxford and Cambridge. And his job was not to get up and give lectures and teach everyone everything he knew about medieval literature. His job was to be a conversation partner, someone who would inspire, be a resource, and a really a dialogue partner to get people thinking about it. And the and you still see the residue of this in the modern educational system in England where you're not given exams every week, you're not given this kind of micromanaged schedule and it's like, here's what you gotta learn, here's the library, here's your tutors, and interesting, they're called tutors, even C.S. Lewis was called a tutor, right? And they're, they're gonna help you as these dialogue partners, but the primary onus of learning is really on the shoulders of the student. And that basic model is, I think, a vastly superior model for many different reasons. So one thing that it does is it promotes people being self-starters and self-propelled. And you, you want to get people to be as active as possible. And you want people to learn how to learn and to learn how to love to learn. Unfortunately, what's happened is because our society has decided that everybody needs a college degree. And you know I certainly appreciate the sentiment of that. But on the other hand, not everyone maybe 
wants to have a college degree or is well suited for that. And so how do you make that happen? Well, the way you do that is by giving everyone these, this highly micromanaged schedule. You whip people every week with, with all of these, these artificial deadlines, et cetera, and you, you effectively, under threat of a poor grade or someone looking over your shoulder, force them to learn according to a certain schedule. Now again, I, I get why people do that, and I'm not, I'm not discounting the motivations for that. But to the extent that you can have people learn on their own, and particularly with the lectures, and and say, hey, you know what? Why don't you go and read a book, or why don't you go and study something online? And then when you come into class, let's solve problems together, and let's learn a whole other range of skills, which is how you process this material how you can work in a group to solve it together, how you can present well. One of my pet peeves is that I don't think that most people who graduate from college today, even from the top schools, are effective at presenting. They simply haven't had the practice, they simply haven't been encouraged in, along those lines. And so those kinds of, they're sometimes called soft skills, although I don't think it's a good term, but those kinds of skills, as lo and behold, when you find out later on when you're a physician or a business person, those are, those are like the most important things that are gonna help you advance in your career, right? Is the ability to collaborate, the ability to present well, the ability to think on your feet, the ability to solve problems there. It's not your ability to regurgitate something that somebody wrote on a lecture board somewhere. And so it's often called the Oxford model, and that's what we espouse, which is a highly dialogical format where the primary responsibility of learning is put on the student's shoulder, and then when they come in, it's let's solve problems, Let's, let's work through things, let's discuss, let's present, and we've just run our first semester, and I think it went extremely well. That's great. So in terms of your, your um, I guess, you know, short-term, longer-term vision uh, in term for, in, for enrollment, is there, is, you know, kind of how, how does that process look? Yeah, in terms of size? You mean in terms of it? size, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has done a lot of interesting writing on this, and he has found that the optimal size of any organization is somewhere around, I think he says 180 is the number that he gives in his book, Tipping Point. And if it's, if it's bigger than that, you simply lose the ability to connect to people. And if it's smaller than that, you haven't really achieved that critical mass that you otherwise could. And even before I went through Tipping Point, I knew I went to a very small college, to Caltech, and the class size at Caltech is 200. So pretty close and it's kind of this school where everybody knows everyone and I found when I went to Caltech compared to coming to Harvard that I knew way more people there and at Caltech and there's an interesting phenomenon that the smaller the school the more people you get to know it's sort of a paradox but it's true and at these very large schools people are progressively more and more insulated I was a resident advisor Call them tutors actually at, at Harvard for a number of years, and I would host study breaks in my room. And I was always amazed at how many people would be juniors or even seniors who would never have met people and who were meeting people for the first time in my room, like in a study break. And I think, like, wow, like you've been at the same school in the same dorm for years and you've never mm -hmm. met until you walk into my room. How's this possible? But again, I think that's this, this problem of, of large numbers, and so. We would like to hit somewhere in that 200-ish uh, 
size, which would imply a class size of about 50 people at steady state. You know, we're not there yet. We, our first class is 21, uh, but we're, we're slowly building up to that. Um, so I know that Eventide uh, Funds and Asset Management is mm-hmm. uh, obviously has a, has a large hand in this yes. in Sattler College. Was there is there particular values or uh, kind of looking at the purpose and values of Eventide, mm-hmm. and how were you able to draw some of these and think about hey are, are these fitting the is, is this fitting our kind of our investment criteria when we're looking at Sattler College and kind of how we're going to form Sattler College? Yeah, I wish we had a whole hour to talk about that. It's a great question. So, even so, even time we started it back in two thousand and eight, and the vision is to we use the term values based investing is to get people to think much more holistically about the purpose of investing, both from a negative side and from a positive side. So, I'll just quickly touch on both and then connect it to Sattler. So, you know, on the negative side, a lot of people who are say committed Christians are investing in companies that are in gambling and tobacco and pornography and abortion and they're profiting from that and you think like wow what's going on here now some people don't know but a lot of people frankly just don't care and they don't bother to do their diligence to figure out what do I own what are the sources of income that I'm profiting from and I've, I've used this analogy before that that I think a lot of people in America live like mafia wives that they're, they've got the fur coats and the diamond rings and the great lifestyles and they know something shady is going on on the other side of the door but they don't want to ask too many questions because they've got the nice, the nice lifestyle and who wants to live like a mafia wife uh, if you want to be an honest person with integrity and so to begin to ask questions on the negative side about what are we profiting from here and is this harmonious with our values that we hold but then on the positive side Investing is supposed to be about funding businesses, right? And it's most fundamental purpose. That's what it is. Fun is is funding businesses. It's not. It's not about an ETF or the market. You know, a lot of people treat the market as this machine that's completely divorced from underlying companies that constitute that. And the way that the world is going with ETFs and 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 the whole obsession about fees. Everything is becoming more and more commoditized, and we're thinking less and less about what is the actual engine of business that is powering the market. We are trying to call people back to a vision to ask very fundamental questions about what is work, what is business, from a biblical perspective. And I think particularly Genesis 1, 2, 3 give a very compelling vision about what work is supposed to be that work is supposed to be from all the beginning, all the way in the beginning to what the garden was. It was supposed to be a, a way that humanity was creating value and, and nurturing the earth and, and providing for one another and, and finding a sense of purpose and fulfillment in that. that. That is a very short sense of what work is, is supposed to be in, in the garden. Now, when you forget about that, and when you treat work not as a, an engine of blessing or as an engine of provision or something that is, is to be celebrated, but as drudgery or as something that is to be endured with your, basically gritting your teeth, mm. then you've already lost a significant component of what the Judeo-Christian traditional understanding is about work. And so we would make the case that that investors should think 
very much about what the purpose of work is and what the purpose, therefore, of business is. And, and then to direct their capital into businesses that are fundamentally adding value to, to society. And so we, we think there's six key stakeholders, customers, employees, the supply chain, host communities, the environment, and then broader society. And we want our businesses to be adding value to all six of those stakeholders, not extracting value. And so, okay, we can talk about this for mm -hmm. a long time, but, but that's what Eventide is all about. And so when we think about something like Sattler College, uh, and just generally uh, trying to support causes that we feel good about, we're trying to direct capital to entities that are harmoniously aligned with that, that overall purpose of what work and business represent. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned the kind of the, the early roots of the garden um, and, right. and work. Um, and, and another take or another thing I want to talk about in, in the garden too is the just I guess nature overall mm -hmm. um, is our is our connection to nature uh, and you mentioned the environment as a key stakeholder mm -hmm. um, how do you think about I, I, I've read that you, you're on a plant-based diet now how, how how have you thought about kind of the tradition yeah and the so I'll, I'll say biblical. a couple things about that so and before jumping into the diet piece I'll just mention that you know I think we often particularly the US don't have a global enough perspective on the environment so I was in India uh, about a year ago, and I was in Uganda two weeks ago, and I, I spent quite a bit of time in both India and Africa. And the last time I was in India, we landed in New Delhi. United had actually canceled all flights going into New Delhi because it was like you were smoking more than 40 cigarettes a day just by walking around New Delhi, right? I mean, the air was so bad, and I, I, I had asthma when I was a child, touch of it now, not, not, not much of it anymore, but when I got off the plane there, you could just feel it. You could mm -hmm. feel this incredible uh, pollution just filling mm -hmm. you, and you, you could feel your eyes get watery, and, and it's, a, it's a tremendous health yeah. crisis that exists today. And you know, here we are in beautiful Boston where we have very little feelings of like, oh, yeah, everything seems, seems great. But I think when you do adopt a more global perspective, I think it helps put us more in touch with how severe the consequences are of abusing the environment, particularly, as I said, in developing countries. Now, mm -hmm. switching to the diet questions, I'm a physician uh, by training, and I spent about five years working as a doctor at mostly Brigham and Women's mm -hmm. and Children's Hospital. And one of the things that, that I quickly figured out was the, well, this is Surgeon General's estimate, but the Surgeon General's estimate is that about two-thirds of all hospital admissions in the U.S. are due to eating basically poor eating. Um, so heart attacks, diabetes, strokes, the whole obesity epidemic, it's all self-inflicted, right? I mean, this is these are highly preventable conditions. And that's an astonishing number. I mean, people are so worried about rising healthcare costs, and people don't ask the question, well, maybe the rising healthcare costs are actually connected to things like poor dietary choices, and maybe we can address the healthcare crisis costs, not by going after the biotech companies and the pharma companies, but by actually thinking more deeply about our diet, because that's literally two-thirds of our admissions, hospital admissions in the U.S. And there's this, I mean, I think it's almost incontrovertible now that the more plant-based a person goes, the better your outcomes with respect to heart disease, diabetes, cancer, all the rest, uh, the data are just Overwhelming. So I think just on on a on a pure utilitarian 
I care about my life, I care about my body, you want to push as much as you can in that direction. But then secondly, and this is more, more something about, I, I would say, Genesis, is you know, the original diet in the garden was a vegetarian diet, right? I mean, that's what God had, had uh, told Adam and Eve, was that they could eat of the plants of, mm. the, of the garden. But it wasn't until after the flood in Genesis 6 that God even allows the eating of meat for humans. So it's kind of interesting that, that at least our original constitution was designed more for a plant-based diet. And then in the very end of time, there's again this, this return to it seems like this paradise where the lion and, the, and the, these predatory beasts are not eating meat anymore, but they're eating grass and straw and these sorts of things and that's described in, in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 11. Uh, so, so that's one element, but then there's a, a third element, which is that the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that, that the righteous man cares for the needs of his animal, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. And if you have ever seen a factory farm, or you've gotten near a factory farm, and you look at how these animals are raised, it's, it, it's pretty crazy how, how much they are abused and how they're really not given anything like what a normal animal should be given and for the sake of our our really our lust for meat we've decided to be extremely cruel in these settings now i'm not a person who thinks that eating meat is wrong or morally wrong or anything like that but i do think that we should not be cruel to animals because the bible says we shouldn't be cruel to animals and unfortunately the vast majority of the meat that's produced in the u.s is is from intensely cruel practices. Mm -hmm. And if you want to get humanely raised meat, it's like $12 a pound or something like that if you go to Whole Foods. And most people just don't want to pay that because they'd rather have their $2 a pound mm -hmm. chicken. But I, I would say, let's again think deeply about are we supporting things that are in line with this biblical vision of stewarding the environment well and being mm -hmm. compassionate towards animals. And so, so really on a few different grounds, I've chosen to go 99% plant-based. If people offer me things, particularly in foreign countries, I'll eat it. That's, that's me. I'm, I'm not, like I said, I'm not a person who thinks it's morally wrong. But, um, but insofar as I can make a choice in that direction, I've done so. And I've lost a lot of weight, have great health, et cetera. So I think it's something that people should consider. Yeah. So, so you mentioned um, a lot of two-thirds of hospital admissions now are, uh, are diet uh, Terry related. Yeah. related. Um, it's just a very, you know, it's a, it's a reactive healthcare system, reactive Absolutely. approach. So if we, on a more utilitarian mindset, if we want to be more proactive, what are like, I think the biggest question I, I have is like, you know, I, someone who's a, who exercises and needs a lot of calories, how am I going to be able to make up uh, all these calories that I've typically, re you know, relied on uh, like a lean meat, a yeah. tuna, or a, yeah. or a chicken. How can I make that up through 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 plant through yeah. sources? Yeah, so a couple things there. So I, I should have mentioned this, but there's a great proverb. It's an Arabic proverb that says, "You dig your grave with your teeth." <laughs> I love that. That that we're we're literally digging our graves in a sense by by the foods that we're eating, right? So. I think that nicely captures the, the sentiment. Uh, so, yeah, with respect to calories, you know, the first thing I, I point out is when you look at the most powerful, most muscular animals in, in the world today, so horses, 
and elephants and bulls and you know these massive creatures that have these incredibly rippling beautiful mo- they're all vegetarian right they're all they're all drawing their protein from plant-based sources and what one finds is that the volume of food that you eat increases because you're now having to have more fiber etc that comes along with it but if you look for example at things like protein per calorie I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the case I'd like I looked this up a while ago but I think it's actually higher in broccoli than it is in meat <laughs> um, uh, so okay. it's very interesting so there, there is actually protein there but it's just it's not as as dense in a caloric uh, source mm-hmm. as it is say you know butter or meat or something like that and and so what I would say is that most people who go on this diet find that they're eating a larger volume but that actually is a good thing because Lo and behold, most of us are like way low on the fiber that we should be getting. And fiber is almost magic when you look at its properties for reducing, say, cancer and other diseases. Mm-hmm. And so I've, uh, I've gone for let's see, 35 years, and I've not missed a single day of work or school for health reasons. Uh, I've never had to call in sick. 35 years, I think that's one of the longer records that I've come across. And it, it totally works. I mean, it, this is this is in line with how we're supposed to be powered. And there's a there's a physician whose name is Joel Furman who says that health is equal to n divided by c. So h equals n divided by c. He says, and the n is nutrients and the c is calories. And so you know you want to have as much nutrients as you can, which come from particularly plant-based sources. Mm-hmm. There's lots of great things in our plants, antioxidants, etc. And then there's a lot of studies to show that human lifespan and generally lifespan in, in a mammal is a function of calories. So if you eat a lot, and you, you probably know about these, uh, these studies, but if you eat a lot, that shortens your lifespan. Just calories generally shorten your lifespan. And one of the things that's kind of getting in vogue now is intermittent fasting uh, because people are realizing that there's all these benefits that come from a lower calorie base and so I, I don't exercise as much now as I used to but I did before and I did really well just on a basically a plant based diet mm-hmm. great yeah I think intermittent fasting has, has gotten it's gotten it's got a lot, a lot more buzz a lot more hype and it's quite trendy now but is, I right? think when we think about it from a, a fasting from more of a, a spiritual discipline Absolutely. spiritual practice it uh takes on a new a new shape and new form in our life that's right it's yeah. important um well just clo- closing in now on time i wanted to know um you mentioned a lot of resources that you've tapped into in your your faith journey and um that have been helpful for you what maybe three resources or books would you uh in, in, encourage our, our listeners to take a look at sure yeah so, so i've written a book so i, I will uh, say that i think people who want to hear things from my perspective uh, should definitely check out my book. It's called King Jesus Claims His Church. And that's a, a lot of church history melded with exegesis, melded with what should the church look like. And so I think particularly people who want to go deep will find that to be an engaging read. There's an author who I highly recommend. His name is David Berceau. It's B-E-R-C-O-T. It's a French last name. And he's devoted really his whole career to understanding the early form of Christianity, the, the pre-Nicene form of Christianity. And 
he read through the entire anti-Nicene Church father set, which I don't know if you've seen it, but it looks almost like an encyclopedia set. And he's a lawyer by training, and he went through it in great detail. Um, he's a friend of mine who I think is an incredible mind and scholar. And he wrote a book called Will the Real Heretics Please Stand Up? And that book basically contends that what we call Orthodox Christianity today would have been called heretical in the early church. And, and then what people today call heresy would actually have been treated as perfectly normal. And so he's a, like I said, a set of brilliant mind who has the ability to synthesize many, many authors. But he wrote this book to be a popular version of it. And it's a, it's a much easier book to read than my book, which tends to be a little more dense. Um, so that would be the second book. And then the third book I would recommend is called Anatomy of a Hybrid. Uh, it's by a guy named Leonard Verduin, and he gives a very interesting, historically grounded study on when the church became a hybrid and when it became this fusion of state and church, and it lost some of the purity of its original founding. And Verduin is a fantastic writer, and if you enjoy good English prose, you will enjoy Anatomy of Hybrids. So those would be my first three books that I would read. I mean, there's hundreds that I would be able to recommend, but those three I think would be a great start. Perfect. Um, well, Vinny, it's been a pleasure having you on the Guys Like Us podcast. Thank well, you for joining. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. It's been a pleasure as well.